Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Lisa Heineman, host of New Books and Gender and Sexuality Studies, part of the New Books Network. When she was a young girl, Hebe Wabe was dedicated in marriage to a deity in Igbo land in present-day Nigeria. Rather than accept this slave status, she ran away. After a couple of decades as a prostitute and trader in exile, she returned home, first as a headman, then as warrant chief, and finally as king. Not queen, but king. Ahebi had transformed herself not only into a high official, but also into a man. For this was a society in which sex and gender did not necessarily correspond. A biological woman could become a man, and a biological man could become a woman. And so Ahebi had not only the power of the throne, but also wives and children to whom she was the father. But although she drew on local practice in transforming her gender— she drew on British patronage in extending her political authority. The Igbo may have had female men, but they did not have chiefs or kings. Wando Achebe is the author of a new book about Ahebe Owabe called The Female King of Colonial Nigeria, Ahebe Owabe, which came out with Indiana University Press in 2011. Winner of the Barbara Penny Canner Prize of the Western Association of Women Historians, this book painstakingly reconstructs Ahebe's life and times. Along the way, it tells a remarkable story of sex, gender, community, and political authority. I'm sure you'll enjoy today's interview with Mondo Achebe. I have here Wando Achebe, author of The Female King of Colonial Nigeria, Ahebe Ubabe. And I'm thrilled to have her on the program. This is an incredibly interesting book. And, um, and I'm sure we're going to have a terrific, uh, a terrifically interesting interview, um, with Professor Achebe. Um, let me ask you, uh, just to introduce yourself to our listeners. Tell us a little bit about your own background and, uh, what brought you to the field of African history. Thank you so very much, Lee. Lisa, for having me on your program. Um, as you know, my name is Wanda Achebe, and I am originally from Nigeria. So I was born in Nigeria, and when I was about two years old, um, my family moved to the U.S. Um, my parents were both at the University of Massachusetts, my mother um, starting a Ph.D. in education, and my father uh, lecturing. And so my early years were spent in Massachusetts, Amherst, Massachusetts. At the age of six, I went back to Nigeria, and I spent my primary school education, which is grade school, um, in Nigeria, and also completed my secondary school education. I took my O-levels into university and was actually planning on attending one of the universities in Nigeria. Um, but my parents, both my parents uh, had a sabbatical and they decided to come back to the U.S. So, um, they insisted on taking me even though I wanted to stay in Nigeria. So that's how I came back to the U.S. and, um, did a first degree at the University of, um, Massachusetts in Amherst. My, uh, field was theater. 
I had a BA in theater, and I also did music and dance. And that was just sort of um, continuing with um, something that was a deep-seated love of mine, which is performance. In Nigeria, I was part of a youth performance group, and we toured Nigeria. It was a folk opera and just uh, did wonderful things. So I was continuing on with uh, performance for my first degree. At the end, when I completed my first degree, I had a year off in which I decided to spend with my family. And it was in that year that I started trying to figure out exactly what I wanted to do for graduate work because I knew I wanted to continue. And at the time, I was still thinking about theater arts and acting and directing. But unfortunately, there weren't any programs that had both acting and directing, where you could do an MFA in both acting and directing. Mm -hmm. It had to be one one or the other. And I just was not sure that acting would be, you know, what I needed to do. I wasn't I wasn't prepared um, to wait tables, is what I like yeah. to say. So I thought to myself, here I am, um, originally from Nigeria. Yes, um, I've been trained in theater arts, so I know how to do these various dialects and all of that. But acting, the field of acting being what it is, I wasn't certain that I would be able to get parts. And so, you know, I thought to myself, okay, what else can I do that sort of um, – combines my loves. And when I decided to go to UCLA, I I got in to do um, an MA, an MA in African Area Studies. And I was originally supposed to study film. But when I got there in 92, the only Africanist filmmaker was on sabbatical. And <laughs> it's a two-year program. So obviously, that was not something that I could sort of continue to do. And so What I decided was, well, since he's on sabbatical, um, what I need to do in the year while I was waiting for him is sort of um, freshen up on um, a background on the kinds of films that I would like to do because I decided I wanted to do documentary filmmaking. And also I decided that I wanted to focus in on Africa. And so that's how I reluctantly, very reluctantly, got into my first history class as a graduate student. And I say reluctantly because as an undergraduate, I hated history. It was my worst subject. I, I would sit in class and catch up on letter writing. <laughs> Shh, don't tell anyone. <laughs> I thought I was seriously taking notes. But no, it was just I was bored to death with history. And I think it had a lot to do with my teacher's. But so here I was, an MA student, walking into this first history class, and I'll never forget that day. This class was taught by my mentor, um, someone who would become my mentor, Professor Boniface Obichere, since deceased. Um, but I walked into the class, and I remember sitting in the, you know, in the front of the class and just being blown away by this, this man. I sat there, and I heard the story, a story of my people, people that I could relate to. And, you know, I had never been so moved. And that was the beginning, I think, of my love affair with history, is that he's the one who introduced me to this vibrant world of African history, and I couldn't get enough of it. So I kept taking classes with him, one class after the next, after the next, after the next, and I ended up getting my M.A., 
in African area studies with a concentration on history. I did film because the filmmaker came back and also literature. And I think that these combinations really sort of helped frame the historian that I am today. Because um, in my work today, I view history um, from a very multi-disciplinary uh, lens. You know, um, in the creation or in the in the unearthing of African women's history and, and, and gender history, I look to several fields to gather my source materials. And you know, one thing we'll talk about with this book—it's—it's it's really quite extraordinary. Um, the the interdisciplinary nature of it, but not only moving, say, from history to literature to anthropology, but the sense of performance and music is very present. And um, you know, unlike many books that might include lyrics of an important song, you include the notation as well. There's a, a very a sense of the, of the 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 auditory nature of performance, the visuals. It's 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 a fascinating set of skills and experience to bring to this project. Yeah, that was very important to me, and I, I'm really happy that my publishers were on board with me when I was talking about, you know, not only including the lyric, because, you know, as you pointed out, in in Africa, history is performed. It's it's really the sounds of history that I that I was trying to, you know, get across. And I was actually really hoping that I would be able to include a short CD of some, mm. just so that people could, could hear and feel what it was like, you know, the music of the time and how these equal historians performed history, how they told Kinga Hebe's story. You know, I had a lot of fun in my office this morning as I was reviewing the book, sort of looking over it, sort of singing these tunes to myself and hoping no one in the hallway was hearing me. Um, but it does allow you to sort of pluck it out, which is terrific. Tell us a little bit about how you moved into this particular project. We might be getting ahead of ourselves with the music. Um, who is, who is the female king of colonial, colonial Nigeria? How did you, how did you come to this particular uh, topic? Well, this topic has been in the making for about 15 years. <laughs> yeah. Um, when I was uh, when I first got into the PhD program after I had continue, uh, c uh, completed my master's degree, I decided to work with the same mentor that um, sort of brought African history to me in a way that I not only understood but appreciated and wanted to be a part of. So I decided to work with him, Professor Boniface Obichere. And I remember we had gotten to the point where we were talking about, okay, what's your topic going to be? And all I knew was that I wanted to work on Igbo history. And I also knew that I wanted to work on women's history. And the reason um, I knew that I, I certainly wanted to do something on women was that at the time, you're talking about the early 90s, there wasn't that much out there on African women's history. And in fact, the few texts or, or articles that were out there tended for the most part to depict African women in a way that was very unfamiliar to me. So I like to say that I didn't see myself in the history. I would read um, articles like Kinsman's uh, Beast of Burden, The Subordination of Swan and Women, and I would sit in class and wonder, who exactly are these women she's talking about? Because these women certainly don't represent me, nor do they represent any African woman that I know. 
And so I quarreled with not just the writing of African women's worlds, but also the interpretation of evidence. My big thing was, how can I look at evidence one way and another person look at the same evidence in a different way? So I thought to myself, instead of getting so mad about this, that perhaps this was a chance for me to offer a unique interpretation, to, to, to throw in my voice um, in the interpretation of women's history. And so, like I said, I decided I want to do Igbo women's history, but which Igbo women? I am originally an Igbo uh, uh, speaker. It's my mother tongue. Um, and I knew for sure that I didn't want to do write my own history. <clears throat> and when I talk about my own history, I'm talking about the history of my own natal group because I wanted to have enough distance, wanted there to be enough distance between me and uh, my research so that I could really sort of look at whatever it was with a critical lens. And so, um, you know, meeting up with my uh, dissertation director, wondering what is it that I can write on, he decided to put me on this uh, reading, just intensive reading of old anthropological reports, anything that we could lay our hands on um, that talked about the Igbo area. And... I remember taking an independent study with him and just having to read all of these ethnographies, anthropological reports. You're talking about stuff written in the late 1800s and early 90, um, um, sorry, 1900s. And I just got frustrated because the more I read, the less I found about women. But I remember my mentor saying to me that not only do I have to complete these readings? But he wanted me also to look at the footnotes. And I will never forget, it was C.K. Meek's Law and Authority in a Nigerian Tribe, page 158, forgetting, where I saw this, there's a sentence that said something to the effect that there's this peculiar happening in Inugwezike where a woman is called Eze. That's how he put it. And Eze in Igbo means king. This was, for me, I mean, I almost dropped out of my chair. And for a number of reasons. First uh, and foremost was the fact that the Igbos had no kings. And there are several sayings. Um, one of the most popular is Iwenwereze, the Igbos have no kings. Um, so... The fact that C.K. Meek was talking about a female king was quite shocking to me. And the other thing was that um, there is an Igbo name for queen. And he didn't talk about this person as being a queen. He said, this person was a female king. I didn't have a name. All I knew was where this female king was from, and that was it. But I had also decided, found for myself an area of research. It was that two lines on page 158 of that opened to me this world that I knew that I must explore. And that was the beginning of my dissertation research. So they come up with a proposal, not just to study this female king, but to study women and gender in Old and Sokka division, which is where this female king was. 
So that was, that was the beginnings of, uh, my introduction to, uh, Kinga Hebi Owabe. And like I said, I didn't know her name at the time. I just had this, this, you know, few lines just talking about this female king. So I wonder if you can introduce her to our listeners. Um, obviously between the point you're talking about and, uh, and the point where you could really tell the narrative, a lot of work went from here to there. Um, but maybe get us oriented. Give us a brief narrative of her life. Okay. Um, and let me, and let me ask you to make sure to stay close to the microphone. Okay. was the female king and foreign chief in all Nigeria and arguably British West Africa. So um, in terms of warrant chief, um, when the British colonized um, Africa, parts of Africa, Nigeria obviously became a British colony. And the British set up a type of rule to rule the people of Nigeria, and it was called indirect rule. Indirect rule was Lord Lugard's brainchild. And um, he had come up with uh, uh, this uh, indirect rule by observing the people of northern Nigeria. And the grand idea was to rule the people through their traditional institutions. And so in northern Nigeria, Lord Lugard would say to the northern Nigerians, well, who are your kings? The northern Nigerians would say, our emirs are our kings. And so what he would do would be to empower the emirs to rule the people. However, so this is what um, this, you know, in, in, in very basic terms, was the policy, administrative policy, that was introduced in colonial Nigeria and actually in all over, all over British Africa. But what the British didn't take into consideration was how do you apply this system of rule in nations or communities that had no kings? And the area that I'm looking at, northern Igbo land, the Igbo, had no kings. So they were a very egalitarian system. It was a rule uh, uh, through elders, male and female elders. So the older you were, the more um, uh, prominent you were in the ruling structure, in the ruling structure. So you had female elders ruling the women's part of society and male elders ruling the male part of society. So in places like Ibuland and other um, non-centralized societies, you had what you call a dual sex system in operation. Um, so what happened with Ahebi Owabe is that she was able in 1918 to become the first and only female war, uh, warrant chief in colonial Nigeria. And what warrant chiefs are is that in those areas where um, the people had no kinships, the British introduced a form of kinship to the people. And they called it warrant chiefs. And what these warrant chiefs were, were that the British went to whoever it was that was in favor of the British. And most of the time, these would be young, opportunistic men. And they would present them with a piece of paper, which was called a warrant. And it was their warrant of office. 
And so when they presented them with this piece of paper, the warrant, these young men became warrant chiefs. And they became, in essence, something that kind of looked like a king, a, 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 a king in a non-centralized society. And, um, you know, these warrant chiefs were able to assume a kind of autocratic power that was not in existence in these parts before the British came into power. So this um, woman that I'm talking about, Ahebi Wabe, was born during the turn of the 19th century. And um, when she was young, I was told that she ran away. She escaped from her natal village of Inuezike. And when I questioned the elders, because this is all oral uh, tradition, when I questioned the elders, wh why or how is it that a child runs away, uh, initially for the first year that I was there, they just kept using that clause, she ran away, she ran away, or she got lost. And I got really frustrated because I didn't understand how it was that a child of 13 or 14 could all of a sudden get lost. But anyway, you know, because I had very limited time on my Ford Foundation grant, I just continued asking questions and, and, um, you know, building up the story of this, uh, young, young woman. It would take another year and another trip into this area for me to understand what truly happened to her. And in my book, I talk about change in my status from, from being a visitor to being a daughter of the community. And the reason I talk about the switch in my positionality is that I was opportuned the second time that I visited the area to do research to interview one of the, the, the most powerful DPS in the area. A DPS is uh, a native doctor. And um, little did I know, I didn't know at the time that I was interviewing him, that he was feared in, you know, in all surrounding areas of this, of, of this town, um, because the claim was that he was not only involved in the making of good medicines, good medicines, you know, make you uh, well, have healing properties and all of that, but they also claimed that he was involved in bad medicines, and bad medicines have the ability to take away life. So there was a lot of fear and mystique around him. But anyway, so I'm talking to him about this woman, Ahebi, well, young girl. And I happened to ask him, I said, um, our father, which is a sign of respect for an older man, I said, um, you know, I have been asking people, going around asking people about this uh, young girl, and, you know, all they say to me, and they continue to say to me, is that she got lost. And, um, and when I ask, how does a 13 or 14-year-old get lost, they shrug their shoulders, or some of them say, well, you know, she became a prostitute after she got lost, you know, but that was not the reason that she got lost. And I said to him, I said, I you know, have gotten to a point where I'm now frustrated. Can you help me out? And, you know, he just looked at me and you know, um, shook his head in amazement and said, you've been at this for how many years? And I said, well, this is my second year. And, you know, I really sort of want to get to the bottom of this. And that was the beginning of the turn for me because he told me in no uncertain terms what happened to this young girl.
Um, and that opened up a flood of information because I was now armed with this information, which I call the community secret, because a community secret had been revealed to me. And the community secret was that when she was about 13 or 14, this young girl was dedicated to the most powerful deity in the area, a goddess called Ohe. And at the time, and you know, this is something that actually continues in this part of northern Igbo land, this whole idea of deities being able to marry human beings or ask for the hand of human beings in marriage. It's an institution called Igomogo, becoming the in-law of a deity. And its roots can be traced back to the time of the abolition of the slave trade, where societies, Igbo societies, African societies, were um, still quite, um, uh, you know, people in the societies were still quite nervous about these slave raiders coming in and taking, uh, taking their people to, to the coast. And so what some of these smaller societies, like the Igbo did in northern land is that they became associated with powerful deities. They asked these powerful deities to protect their society and entered into an agreement with these deities. So these deities were there to not only protect them, but also to repopulate society. And hence, the repopulation of society could only happen if these deities could marry human beings. And so that act of a spirit marrying a human being is exactly what happened to Ahibiubabe when she was about 13 or 14, is that this deity, Ohe, asked for her hand in marriage. And once a human being marries a deity, it is, in actuality, a form of slavery, but it's it's a form of slavery. I like to say that the African system of slavery is very, very diverse, so that you have slave systems that take away rights, and you also have slave systems that actually advance people's rights. And in a sense, you can describe this deity to um, human marriage as, even though it is a slave system, it is one that advances one status in society because that person and that person's family is forever linked with a very powerful deity that continues to protect them. But um, Hebe Wabe did not care for this status. It sounds like this is what, what caused her break with the community initially. She didn't. She didn't at all um, because, again, if a person is married to a deity, uh, it's a form of slavery because that person can no longer marry a freeborn individual. You can't fall in love and get married. You are dedicated in marriage to a deity. You become the deity's wife, and you're supposed to bear children for that deity. It's a form of slavery. And this young girl um, did something that, uh, you know, was unthinkable especially, not just especially at the time, but for someone as young as she was, is that she decided, I don't want any of this. She refused to be dedicated. And refusing to be dedicated, in essence, immediately pulled her away from her society. You know, 
she could no longer stay in the society in which she had rejected the society's um, laws. Because in essence, what uh, the, 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 the goddess is saying is, and the goddess is representative of the society, is that a crime had been committed, her father committed a crime. We're not sure exactly what this crime is. All we know is that it was grave enough for this deity to ask for his daughter's hand in marriage. And in a refusing to be dedicated to this deity, what it did do is that it created a debt uh, 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 for the society. The society now had a debt to the goddess. And she was, in a sense, then creating this problem for her community by by refusing the status of of wife of the deity. Um, just to clarify, um, the idea is, of course, repopulation, and that the wife would then bear children of the deity. Can you clarify for us how that works? It works because um, in Igbo land, um, this whole idea of sex and gender uh, do not inside. One obviously can be born biologically female, but can be cat- categorized as male. Um, and what the deities did in terms of what I call deity to human marriage was to evolve an already existing institution in Igbo land. And this institution, woman-to-woman marriage, not only happened in Igbo land, but happened all over West Africa, um, in areas of East Africa and also areas of Southern Africa. And what this institution was is that it allowed a woman to assume the gendered role of man. And the woman who assumed the gendered role of man became the female husband to marry a wife who, obviously, a woman who became her wife and assumed the gender responsibilities of not just husband, but also a father. And typically, the women who became female husbands became female husbands to improve their status in society. Um, becoming a female husband not only improved your political, but it also improved your social and economic status in society. Um, and what they did is, like I said, they married a woman. The reason, another reason why they would, that sometimes the female husband then able to have children. So a barren woman who wanted to continue her own line and her own lineage. So she would marry a woman and observe all of the rights and all of the processes of marriage. And in this part of Nigeria, it would include um, something that's called the payment of bride price, which I actually argue in my book is probably better uh, looked upon as child price. And what that is, is a token. It's money that either a female husband or a husband pays to his future wife's family to allow him or her right over their future children. If bride price is not paid in land, then when a child is born, that child does not belong to the husband, does not belong to the father, does not bear the father's name. The child will belong to the mother and her lineage and bear her name. 
So what these deities did, like I said, they evolved the same institution, which allowed a female husband to marry a wife, but in this case, a spirit is marrying a human being. The spirit is paying the bride price for these wives. Um, how does the spirit now repopulate society? The spirit repopulates society by having his or her wives have numerous children. And how does that happen? I always say to my students that um, the 20th century sperm donorship that we is something that we've had in Africa from time immemorial. And the difference is that Africans don't go to a sperm bank. These women actually have sex. So what happens when a female husband or a, fe or a deity marries a human being is that her wives go out and have consensual sex with whichever man they want to. It can be one man, it could be several. But any child born of the union does not belong to the sperm donor, to the man that she's had sex with. The man that she's had sex with is a sperm donor. The man is a sperm donor because he has not paid bride price, and it's bride price that allows him rights over the future children. So he merely serves as a sperm donor for this goddess. So it was in this way that and other goddesses like Ohe, Nomkome, Adara, there are several goddesses like her, established societies that were entirely um, um, children and wives of particular deities. So you had entire communities that were made of wives of deities. And that's, what, that's how um, this deity Ohe would have been able to continue to repopulate society if Ahebi had agreed to be married she ran off and hence the 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 statement that you know my oral history collaborators kept telling me they just kept saying she got lost she ran away she got lost it was this running away that they were describing she ran away from being dedicated to this deity, Ohe. And what happens next is that she goes into exile for a couple of decades, um, has a career there, um, most likely both as a prostitute and as a, as a trader, learns foreign languages, including Pidgin English, which is going to serve her well in the future. Maybe you could talk a little bit about her time in exile. Her time in exile um, was one of the most difficult for me as a, an oral historian uh, to put together, to piece together. Because um, as I was asking questions, there was very little that was known about her initial stay in exile. Because remember, this is a 13, 14-year-old girl running away from home. We do know that her first stop was in her mother's village. In Iboland, we have a saying, Be means uh, the place where your mother comes from um, is a very special place for children because you can expect to, to gain solace in your mother's place if for any reason you can no longer stay in your father's 
um, uh, town, you move to your mother's town. That's a place you just, it's a belief that your mother is there and her people are there to protect you. So we do know that Ahebi's first stop, you know, um, in exile was Onado, which was her mother's town. However, when she was in Onado, um, oral, uh, evidence tells us that Ahebi was perhaps raped. Um, during her time in exile in her mother's town. And because of, perhaps because of that rape, she leaves Unado and ventures further north into the famous Igala kingdom. And that's where she spends decades, at least 20 years, um, from childhood to mature. Um, during the time that she was in Igala land, um, we know that she became a traitor. The reason that we know this is that from oral evidence um, on both sides, both the Igbo side and the Igala side, I was able to gather information on the kinds of, um, uh, uh, what is it called, um, uh, the, the things that Ahibu Wabe traded in. So that much I did know. I also knew um, about, I think it was maybe three or four towns that oral um, evidence had told me that he did about three or four towns. But again, there wasn't much information on what her activities were. I did know from the Igbo side that, yes, she became a prostitute when she was in, in Igalaland, and that was also confirmed by um, my time in Igalaland, so that much I knew. But exactly where she was, exactly what she was doing at certain points, I didn't know. And so um, in order to sort of flesh this out, I uh, came up with something that I call geomapping. And what that is, is the use of colonial uh, period ma maps of the areas that I did know that she visited. Um, we were able to map out exactly her various journeys would have been. And in that part of the book, I call it Ije Ahebi, Ahebi's journeys. And so from uh, meticulously mapping these, these trips, so in other words, if we know that Ahebi um, went to Ida, which was the capital city of the Galakia, how can she get to Ida from Inuezike? Or how can she get to Ida from Unado, which was her mother's place? And there are only so many ways that she can do that. And so in that way, I was able to painstakingly build up her journeys in Igala land. And in the end of that, we were able to, I was able to come up with the fact that she probably either visited or lived in at least 18, 19 different locations, localities. So that was one way I was able to sort of flesh out what her journeys were. Um, in terms of the prostitution, again, um, the information that I was given was she became a prostitute. I heard this from the Igbo side. I heard this from um, the Igala side. But what I didn't know for sure was exactly what, you know, how was, what did her involvement look like at the time? What kind of prostitute was she? You know, and so, you know, in order to, um, in order to conceptualize, in order to put together, recreate that part of her life, I had to 
look uh, to uh, what is it called, evidence, not only from the Igbo side, but from the Igala side about how the Igbos and the Igalas, um, um, how they view, how they construct prostitution on both sides. So I was able to do that for the Igbo and the Igala side and just sort of surmise that, you know, this is what prostitution looks like in Igbo country, in Nsoka and the Nsoka area, uh, the term that was most uh, usually uh, referenced was this term, free woman, that a woman, so far she wasn't married, um, could use her body in whatever way that she so pleased. So in fact, women were encouraged to explore their sexuality. That was what, that was the case in uh, the Insuka area. And therefore, prostitution was not something that was frowned upon. It was very much looked upon as women's work. And, um, you know, so far as you weren't married, it was the prostitute had a welcome um, position in society. In the Igala area, the construction was a little bit different. Um, and again, uh, go back to the Nsuka area. The Nsuka area didn't have, um, there was never a male pimp who was in charge of the prostitute or her services. So it was a woman who decided who, when, where, how much. When you get to the Igala side, it's, it's, it's very different. The woman, um, nine out of ten times was not in charge of her own, uh, her own body or her own sexual, um, neighbors, there was either a male pimp or a female madam that pretty much was in charge of these sexual labors. And so I was able to sort of um, show what prostitution looked like at the time that Ahibi practiced as a prostitute. That's what I tried to do in that chapter, since very little evidence to us in terms of exactly what Ahibi was doing as a prostitute herself. And, of course, the, the best evidence we have of Ahebe comes in really the next chapter of her life, uh, where she becomes a, a political figure. She, um, she, um, and of course, this is the time when the, the British are extending their control over Nigeria and particularly this region. Um, and she comes into contact to them, with them. And this sort of moves us towards, um, again, the career, the, the, the part of her life that she's best known for. And I wonder if you could tell us about that. How does she, how does she become a warrant chief and then eventually a king? Yes. So, um, Ahebe Wabe comes to age in Igala. We know that she um, not only participates in prostitution, but that she's also um, a trader and becomes a trader. She not only trades in potash and palm oil, but eventually we're told that she trades in horses, which is a big deal because only the very wealthy traders could trade in horses. So she had become, you know, um, you know, for lack of a better term, a big trading. We also do know that prostitution put her in touch with the Igala kings. So she um, was a friend, for lack of a better term, uh, with uh, a number of Igala kings. And I believe that it's her relationship with the Igala throne that eventually puts her in touch with the British colonial officers who, like you said, at the time are uh, extending their, their control 
um, into the in Nigerian interior. So it is a period in history that we call the patrols, the period of the patrols, where they have, the British have established um, contact in several areas of Nigeria, especially the outskirts of Nigeria, but it's taking them longer to conquer and colonize the interior. So um, at this time, when we're talking about the uh, early 1900s, looking at from probably about 1902 onwards, uh, the British are launching patrol after patrol to conquer the interior of Africa. And in order for these patrols to be successful, the British need intelligence information on what routes to follow uh, through which to conquer the people. And the only way they can get this is by befriending indigenous peoples who are willing to give that information that allow them to conquer the interior. And we find out not just from oral evidence, but also from archival evidence that Ahimabe served as one such informant. She was able to um, reveal to the British the route through which to conquer her people. And in fact, we know that the British from Igala land where they were stationed with Ahimabe. So she accompanied the British into Inuizike. Because of her services to the British, namely showing them the routes through which to conquer her people, that the British um, uh, tap her on the shoulder and present her with a token of their appreciation. And that token of uh, their appreciation was to give her the first position of head. She replaced, she would replace the aged head of, uh, of Umweja in Wezike, who could not speak Pidgin English, did not know how to speak Igala or, or Nupe or any of the other languages that Ahebi did. Um, and so she was able to usurp, to unseat this particular headman and, uh, uh, and take on this position. So this was the first in a series of gendered modifications. Ahebi first becomes female headman, not headwoman. The reason she's able to become head again is because um, in Iwoland, um, again, sex and gender do not coincide. So women can become men and men can become women. So in this case, this exceptional woman was able to assume the gendered role of man to take on this office of headman. So this is how she started. She became headman first. And because she was such a good headman, in 1918, when the British formed the colonial court system, they chose four principal court members. And it wasn't surprising to the people around that one of those court members was Ahebi Obabe. And in the colonial documentation, it is said that she was awarded this position in recognition. Okay, I'm sorry. I just, if you could just repeat that last little bit. Okay. Um, in 1918, she was one of four warrant chiefs that were selected um, to the native court of Ezekiel. And 
um, the British in their colonial documentation um, say that she was awarded this position in recognition for her past services to the British. And the, um, the British clearly thought very highly of her. In fact, they compare her favorably to some of the um, male headmen and uh, later on warrant chiefs. Yeah, they not only um, compare favorably, uh, most of the documentation on the other warrant chiefs um, was actually quite unfavorable <laughs> of, um, of assessment of their abilities. Um, it was very clear to the British that Ahibu Wabe, in fact, was the best person, male or female, to assume that position because the other Warren chiefs did not have the power or the abilities that Ahibu Wabe had. They did not have the support of their people. And so, and the British talk about this extensively about and compare her to these male warren chiefs. And in the end, you know, the assessment is um, the fact that she was the best person to become warren chief, male or female. And And this brings us up to a a really interesting um, part of your discussion, which is that on the one hand, she's drawing from longstanding practices of, of women becoming men in, if, if for social function, the, the longstanding convention of female husbands, for example, and the possibility of a female warrant chief was, was uh, made sense in terms of longstanding, that longstanding capacity to change gender. But she's, of course, doing it um, under colonial rule and via colonial authority, which complicates matters. It very much complicates matters. So um, I would say that her first gendered modification or transformation into headman um, was done as a result of her relationship with the British. At least um, um, there was not that position of headman in the society before the British came. It was the British that actually introduced this, again, you can refer to it as a fake office, you know, um, in in order to try to emulate what was was, um, in operation in northern Nigeria or in any kinship society actually had, you know, individual leaders. Remember, this area that we're talking about did not have individual leaders. Leadership was by the community, the elders of the community, the male and female elders. So the very introduction of headmen into a society that did not have individualized power was not in keeping with the tenets of the culture. So I argue that her first modification was, you know, she was able to do this as a result of her relationship with the British. Her second modification into a female warrant chief also happened as a relationship, as a result of her relationship with the British. Again, warrant chief did not exist in the pre-colonial order. It was an affront to the people's ideals of egalitarian, you know, egalitarianism. Um, you know, not only are you, are not only are they empowering one person, they're empowering, the British are now empowering a young woman to lord it over, you know, the masses of people that do not feel that any one person should be a leader. In fact, they have a saying that if you want so if you want to be king, stay in your own mother's backyard. Don't yeah. lord your 
governing over, you know, all of us. So, you know, the Igbo people were very, very firm in their belief that it is the community that rules itself. So those first two transformations into female headman and female warrant chief, um, she was able to do as a result of her relationship with the British. Um, her third gendered modification, and again, before I actually get into her third, because she was able to enforce these modifications as a result of her relationship with the British, you can imagine that the masses, the general masses, especially the male gerontocratic uh, elite, did not like that the British had chosen this young woman to, 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 to be their leader. They didn't like it at all. And also, Ahebi as warrant chief um, was not really the best of warrant chiefs in the sense of the way that she treated her people. Like most warrant chiefs of the time, she was corrupt. She would use, um, uh, you know, script the people, force them into her workforce and use them um, to, to, to as, as forced labor, to build roads and all sorts of things for the colonial government and for herself. So the people didn't like her at all. But they really couldn't do much about her, her reign because she had the total support of the British. But that support of the British, her um, uh, position as warrant chief was not enough for this ambitious woman. She decided to take it a step further. And what she decided to do was that in order to be the best that she could be in terms of political ascent, she needed to become king. And again, we're not talking about her becoming queen because remember, she's already transformed herself into a man. And she is, at that time, relating mainly with the male members of society because Ahebi Obabe, even though she's biologically female, has become a gender male. Interactions mainly are with the male element of society. So third gender transformation, in order to sort of seal this, is she decides, I'm going to become king. And because the Igbo have no kings, she journeys back to Igala land, to the king of Igala, who makes her king. And he does not make her queen. And when I asked the Igala, why is it? You visited the king's palace, and I asked, you know, why is it that you made her king? Is there any precedence for her becoming a female king? Why not queen? And that's when they relayed to me their own tradition of origins. The Gala believed that their first king was a female king. She was the first and only female king um, in their area. So they do have that history. They do know about female kings. So it wasn't um, something that unusual for them to make her king. And once they did this, she journeys back into Inuizike with the support of the Igala, and she's able to not only assume position, because remember, she's still Warren Chief. She has the British backing there, and she's king. She has the Igala backing. But all of these gender transformations, as you rightfully pointed out, are happening away from Igbo sensibilities. It's not the that are propelling her to become, to assume these positions of power. So that even though they do know about gendered um, modifications and transformations, they are not, in essence, 
in approval of any of these gendered modifications that IHB has so far taken. So almost, you know, in order to complete this, I argue, in order for her to become a full man, I use that term full man, um, because it was very important for Ahebi. She's achieved this um, with British support, the headman and warrant chief positions. She's achieved the kingship position with the help of the gala. But I guess she really wanted to elevate herself within the context of her own society. And the only way that she felt that she could do this was to become a full man. And the very definition in Igbo land, much as in Africa, uh, in, in Nigeria and West Africa, um, uh, you know, a full man is a, uh, uh, an individual, male individual, has to be, be born biological, biologically male, who has gone through the initiation ceremonies to become a masked spirit. And these initiation ceremonies in uh, Igbo parlance, they say, um, you know, it's seeing, the ability to see the masked spirit in its nakedness. The masked spirit um, in Igbo land uh, are believed to be the dead who have come back to life. So they are the dead who have come back to life and they serve in the capacity of sometimes as policemen and women, enforcement, um, that is their main um, uh, service that they perform uh, uh, for community, but they also control behavior. Sometimes these masked spirits are used to female behavior. So Ahebi Obaba felt that in order to achieve full manhood, she had to um, come out with a masked spirit. And that's what Ahidi Owabe did, is that she not only went through the initiation, she came out with her own masked spirit, which was called Ebe Ahidi. And that's what, in essence, did her in, because her people had had enough. That, that was a boundary that they were not willing to have her or any uninitiated man. So it's not just, the, the, the crime here was not just that, you know, Ahibi the woman did this. The very definition of full man is a man who has gone through the initiation into the masquerade cult. If you have not gone through the initiation in Igbo land, you are not considered a man. So that if you're an 80-year-old uh, 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 male who has not gone through the Iboifuma initiation, the community considers you as a boy. Whereas if there's someone who's 15 or 16 that's gone through this initiation, they are considered a man over the 80-year-old who has not gone through the initiation. So um, the masquerade cult is not only that which uh, differentiates men from women in society, it's also that which differentiates full men from ordinary men in society. And so this was the crime that Ahibi committed in becoming a mass spirit and bringing out her own mass spirit. And the people just wouldn't stand for it. So that was the beginning of the end of her power. 
so she there's 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 uh you know there's a this is really her downfall and partly because of changing relations with the British um, or they're changing the, the changing ways that they're exerting power the British at this point don't back her up no no as um, you know is customary uh, decides to introduce her mass spirit to the community during a particular festival and this is customary you know they have festivals and all these masquerades come and they dance and they perform and people are there, uh, you know, uh, to, to witness this. It's a celebration by the community. And on that given day, Ahibiu Babe approaches the oldest man with this mass spirit and she kneels in supplication and offers him kolanat, which in Ibuland is a symbol of peace. I have come to you in peace. And this is a peace offering. And the oldest man immediately looked away and he put on a symbolic hat which he puts on when things are not okay mm-hmm. says to her turns away and says to her may our ancestors not hear or listen to the abomination that has been uttered from your lips and immediately he signals his people and they escort a hebe's mass spirit at that to the back and the masquerade is never to be seen again. So they take away her masked spirit. Once they take away this masked spirit, all of a sudden, her, her position, her positionality as all powerful. Cause mind you, I mean, I, I talked about how she was able to become, um, headman, warrant chief king and all of that. I have also dabbled in medicines. And like I said in the beginning, it's they're good and bad medicines. She dabbled in good medicines for her health, but she also dabbled in bad medicines that were believed to keep her supernaturally powerful. For instance, there was a rumor that, um, you know, uh, one of the most powerful Debias medicine men came from Igalaland, and any time he came, people would stay indoors because if he crossed, if you crossed paths with him, the belief was that he would steal away your life force to continue to build up Ahibi's life force. And once he does that, you die, and Ahibi continues to be supernaturally powerful. So once these elders were able to take away her mass spirit, which is something that the people, the, the community didn't think could happen, because she had already uh, managed to construct herself as all-powerful. Not only is she weren't chief, she's king. Uh, she's now, she now has this uh, mass spirit, so she's become full man. The people were shocked. And so slowly but surely, her power starts unraveling. So much so that the people um, start composing songs uh, to ridicule Ahibi. And one such song called um pretty much says that Ahebi, the woman who became a man and as such became a mass spirit, has been stripped of all the rights of not only manhood, but being a mass spirit, and she's now a nobody. And this is a song that the people were singing all around town to to ridicule this this female king. 
So it's a real, a real, just an incredible turn of status. I mean, it's this sort of this, first of all, remarkable rise, and then this kind of crashing fall for her. Um, and you describe how she, in some ways, in this sort of last remarkable gesture, wants to ensure her legacy. And she does that by, by staging her own funeral to make sure that it's grand enough. And, and I, I just thought that was such a, a, an interesting moment. Um, you know, here she was, she's, she is a nobody at this point, but she is going to get her last word in. Yes. And part of, um, becoming nobody. Um, had a lot to do, again, with the British not supporting her enough. Uh, she took the elders to court um, in order to try and get back her mass spirit. And um, it went to the highest court in the area, the, the resident's office. And unfortunately for Ahibi, the, the resident, um, um, you know, uh, agreed with the elders of the community. And all he said was, she, he said, you're a woman, you're not allowed to, to bring out a mass spirit. But he asked the elders to pay her back whatever money that she used in acquiring the mass spirit, but that they could keep the mass spirit. So for all intents and purposes, she's lost out. She's lost her power base, right? The British are no longer supporting her. And mind you, at this same time, around the same time, the whole institution of Warrant Chief has been dissolved. It's been dissolved as a result of the 1929 Women's War, which does not happen in this part of Iboland. It happens in southern Iboland, but it has, uh, um, um, it extends the influence of that war, extends not only all over Iboland, but all over British colonial Africa. Is that as a result of that war, the Warrant Chief Institution was abolished. And in its place, the British introduced a new system, which was called the bench system, where they had eight men sitting on a bench and ruling as opposed to one person. So, you know, again, like I said, Ahebi had lost her power base, uh, the power base that she had in the British. However, she hadn't totally lost all of her powers because remember, Ahebi has this palace, right? She still has her slaves. She still has, um, she has a school there. Um, her court, unfortunately, the, the people of her community are no longer going to her court. So she's unable to try cases and all of that. Her marketplace is closed down, but she knows that, you know, she wants to make sure that she gains a place in the afterworld, at a place of importance in the afterworld. And that is why she performs this very unique um, 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 uh, 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 ceremony, which the people had never before seen and has never happened ever, ever since Ahidi, Ahidi performed it. And it was called Inuweyanandu, to bury herself while she was still alive. And in essence, what she did was, because she saw her power fast, uh, very fastly eroding, she decided to have her funeral while she was still alive. She said, you know, whatever funeral you all, you know, would have given me when I died, I want to see it. I want you all to pay homage to me while I'm still alive. And so she had one of the biggest funerals 
that anyone had seen in the area. She had representatives from the British government, from the Atta, who's the king of Igala land. The marketplace, she closes down the major marketplace of the town, which was totally unheard of. Nobody has the right or ability to close down a marketplace, but she was able to do that by offering offering to the community. And so, you know, the, 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 of the, the day of the funeral was just a day of major merrymaking and celebration. And what they did in the end is that they buried a representation of a Hedi in the ground and performed all the rites and rituals that, um, you know, that are typically performed to usher the living into the land of the dead, which is the world, the, the, the land of the ancestors. Because if you are not buried well in the society, the belief is that you will roam the world as an evil spirit if they do not perform um, your burial rites the way that they should. So Ahibiu Wabet was very, very important to her that burial rites be performed the, the way that they should. And she suspected because her power was unraveling that, you know, they might not perform it the way that she wanted it to be performed. And so she made sure it was done in her presence. Usher her into the land, into the world of the ancestors and the world of the spirits. And as you can see at the uh, end of the book, Ahibi Baba indeed not only becomes an ancestor, but something greater than an ancestor, she becomes deified and becomes a goddess after she dies. So there is an Ahibi Obabe goddess in the town of her mother's birth that is worshipped today with with sacrifices. He managed to, you know, evolve yet again. Another tradition, if you would. Yeah. <laughs> It's an incredible story, you know. This sort of, like you say, the sort of re-evolution, um, even after her death, into into status of deity. And there's just a very interesting discussion at the end of the book about about memories. Um, you interview some of her descendants, um, as well as descendants of other community members. Um, what very very interesting visual evidence, both of her travels during her exile and also photographic um, materials um, of of her descendants as well as, um, again, this music, and I'd love to hear that CD. <laughs> yes, you know, one or two of the songs, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've talked for a long time about this book. It's fascinating, and I, I highly recommend it to our listeners. Let me just ask you our traditional closing question, which is, what are you working on now? <laughs> I, I, was, I was taking a break for a little time, but um, <laughs> on beginning, let me say, say beginning the process of working on a new big project, um, again, tapping into uh, my oral uh, history. Um, but this time, it's going to be slightly different. I'm, I'm looking into uh, British enterprise in colonial Nigeria. Um, a number of books, uh, studies, you know, out there, but they tend to look at the political, you know, what, what were Brit the British doing administratively and, you know, all of that. I'm more interested in the lives of, you know, these British officers that spent so long in Nigeria. You know, what was it about Lord Lugard or, you know, whoever that propelled them 
to leave England and serve in, you know, in a continent, you know, at the time that was perceived as the dark continent. And so I'm really sort of interested in looking at their lives and, you know, just the evolution of their thought processes in colonial Nigeria. So I'm looking at, um, you know, uh, the lives of individual British officers in Nigeria and how they interacted with uh, Nigerians on the ground. So that's, that's something I'm beginning to start to, to, to think about. Um, and uh, my second project is just a general project where I'm beginning to work on a textbook on women and gender in Africa. Wonderful. These are, we have a lot to look forward to. It sounds like very interesting reading. Thanks so much for being with us today. This has been uh, Wanda Achebe, author of The Female King of no- Colonial, excuse me, The Female King of Colonial Nigeria, Ahebe Ubawe, um, come, which came out with Indiana University Press in 2011. Thanks so much for talking to us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so very much for having me. We've been talking to Wando Achebe, author of The Female King of Colonial Nigeria, Ahebe Obabe. The book came out with Indiana University Press in 2011. I'm Lisa Heineman, host of New Books in Gender and Sexuality Studies, part of the New Books Network. Thanks very much for joining us. 